0: thank you choir again let's pray oh gracious God this morning we thank you for bringing us to this place as your people the communion of your saints and so in this place God we ask that you would gift us with your spirit so that together we may find the words that will help us and each other and all of your children find a place in knowing that you are the God of love in their lives In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we are going to read from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the first 13 verses. So if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 171 of your New Testament. Like I said before, uh, this is the introductory day to a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, um, which isn't going to be immediately evident from this text but I'll explain. So if you want to follow along, 1 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. Now concerning concerning food sacrifices to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, We know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those whose weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right. So picture it. We uh, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And our best guess is that they wrote a letter to him in the first place. We're not sure because we don't have a copy of that letter. But the Corinthian church had already met Paul and he'd already spent time with them. This traveling missionary has come and taught them some Things about the faith before he moved on. When he did move on, they write him a letter. And in that letter, apparently, is the fact that they are having a fight at church about this idea of eating food sacrificed to other idols. The backdrop of that is the constant refrain of the New Testament and the early church trying to figure things out between what does it look like to have this Christian liberty where, you know, Paul is saying to them, you have the freedom to do anything you want now by the grace of God, and then you also have the part of the church who's saying, wait a second, we never got to eat food to other idols back in the day. That was a great big no-no. The intermixing of God and other idols and the confusion between the two was one of the huge problems in the Old Testament. What are we doing? So apparently they write Paul a letter in the debate. What do we do? Because Again remember they're living in a pluralistic world at this time Christianity is not dominant and there are other Faiths and there are other practices and there are actually feeding eating food to idols part of the church is saying hey It's no big deal Those gods don't even exist and the other part is saying wait a second. God always thought this was a huge deal So Paul steps in he writes this letter and his outcome, the last thing we read was, you can, I'm not going to do it. If you have just that statement, just a statement that says, you can, but I'm not going to do it, you know, you might misunderstand exactly how Paul got there. And the point, really, of what Paul writes is not just to tell them what to do. If you notice, what we read was his logic. His logic that went behind why he would say that you can, but I won't, and it's in that logic as we do a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, that that's what I want you to think about—not just the things we say, but the logic that falls behind them. So, what Paul says and what he actually argues here is, first of all, and he quotes this. And we're not sure where he's quoting from, although it could have been a very early creed, one earlier than the Apostles' Creed, one that actually we probably still have around. It's called the Nicene Creed. But in that, his first argument is we believe in one God. From that, he goes, and he quotes it, right? They're saying that, apparently they're saying that. That's their creedal statement already in the church. We believe in one God. He goes, if we believe in one God, then all those other gods that everybody is sacrificing this food to, they're not real. Stop giving them energy stop thinking that they matter You believe in the one god the one who creates that is almighty that is powerful That is the one who saves you through christ. Don't worry about this other stuff. It's not real And in that he gives us that word liberty You have freedom in god's grace to do anything you want In other words, what he's saying is between you and God, this is just you and God alone, you don't need to worry about this at all. God's fine. God has already saved you. God is going to save you. God is not the problem here. But then he moves on to the next argument, right? The but, the big but to this. And he goes, but you live in community, don't you? You have people there. And he actually calls them weak, weak people. People who just aren't as far along in that trusting of their liberty as you might be and they see you going off to other religions and eating that food and you are a stumbling block to them And So that becomes his argument, right? You have to understand the logic of how he gets there, but he goes, that's why I don't eat the food It's not because I can't. It's because I don't want to get in someone else's way as they are becoming this thing called a Christian as they're learning to live into that liberty, I don't want to get in their way of doing it. Not that I can't, but that I won't for their sake. That logic, that it's not just me and God and my relationship with God, but that God actually gives us physical ways to experience the grace of God. Today, we, we have one of the main, the main ones, right? The means of grace. This unmerited failure of God is actually put into a physical thing you can do. Communion. Baptism. Those are our primary ones, those are the, the sacraments, but there's a whole host of things that build up and help us do this better. We have weddings. Right? You stand up, and it's not a sacrament, but you stand up and you say some words and you're in the place where you actually experience the grace of God joining with someone else. Funerals. Doing grief well. We have confirmation, which is a big part of why we're doing a, a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, is we have kids going through confirmation now, and there comes a point in that confirmation where they'll be professing their faith, so they'll be standing up here, and in that experience we have ordination, which Not just ministers, but elders and deacons. There's these moments all the way along the lines where God says it's not just me and you and what you're feeling and doing internally, but that it becomes physicalized in community. And community itself is part of the means of grace. Wherein you're loving each other, and sometimes fighting with each other, and the tension that exists between the two, you become. The becoming is still matters. It's not just you and God, but the becoming of community and all the things that happen there. That's his argument. God is not going to judge you for these things. God has loved you and accepted and embraced you. He's going to save you. But in the becoming, that community that God gave you to become in, you have to be concerned about And so we turn to things like the Apostles' Creed. We look at documents like this. So think about just that that standard, not just the outcome, but the logic. The logic of Paul is saying, and this is an old common phrase, you get this, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. If you give Christians the answer of what they have to say or do, they can just do that. You teach them to think theologically about the things they're doing, and then they, it's part of their becoming. So in the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to look at this primarily, first of all, because we do have confirmation kids, they're going to stand here at some point, May 17th is Confirmation Sunday, and they're going to say it, and guess what? You're going to get asked to stand up during that service and say what word? The Apostles' Creed the shared confession of the church. So I want us to get back to the point where we are helping them in their becoming and you and your becoming by again looking at this and understanding what it is. To do that, though, let me offer this. Here's the first thing I want you to know. There is something that the Apostles' Creed is not. You know, there's a lot of Christian traditions that don't use creeds, and I, I respect them, uh, for for their stance on this. But the reason we do it, and you need to understand that the thing that we are not doing here is this. We are not playing divide and conquer the church. Sometimes that's what people think the creeds are. Uh, our creeds are confessions. They are there to decide who's in and who's out. There's a place for that, in a sense. Historians have to do it. When historians look back at the history of Christianity and want to explain who they were and what they did, they need to have some definitions on that stuff. And so things like creeds, they they believed the stuff in the Apostles' Creed or they didn't, helps them make those distinctions when they tell the history of it. Holsters need to do this now, right? If you want to do a demographic study on on sort of what Christians are doing, they need to figure out some definitions. In fact, here, Here's a a thing that will help emphasize the point. You've probably heard on the news, you know, evangelicals believe this, evangelicals vote this way. You've heard that word, evangelicals. Are you an evangelical? Here's the problem. Evangelical has no definition. The most I can say about that word is that it was a movement, but it had different goals from different people. It was never solidified into a thing that said, this is what it is, and this is what it's not. And so you know what happens when you see those polls on, on the TV? What is happening is that the pollster is calling somebody, and they're asking, do you consider yourself an evangelical? And then based on that moment and that person and their opinion of that word, they say yes or no. Which means the information you get when you see pollsters talk about evangelicals is an ever-moving target. And you have to adjust what you think you know, what you think that means by the fact that it's just the people who said, yes, I like that word. So pollsters and historians, they do need definitions. They need to be able to explain who's in and who's out when they give information and they tell history's story and they give demographical information. But that is not the church's task. We are not here to divide and conquer. We are not here to define who is in and who is out. Like Paul's logic you have a God who is the one who saves you There is no set of words that are the right words. There is no set of ideas that are the right ideas You are gods You are The thing that God is saving It's not your work. It's God's So we're not here to make those dividing lines among ourselves Instead what the creed is, what the Apostles creed is, kind of goes back to what the church's task should be. We had uh, Developmental Psychologists give us a really good picture of what a church can and should do, actually. I can't remember if it was a guy named Fowler or a guy named Erickson, but they talked about uh, faith formation. And if the church wants to be a place where faith formation happens, where people become Christians... What they talked about was you need to think of your task as like a womb. A womb. There is definitely a a, a holding space of safety that nurtures and takes care of, but there's all kinds of space in the middle where growth happens. And so you don't fill in that space so much that no growth can happen, but you also don't just eliminate any kinds of lines around it because you can't nurture anything then either. You need a womb. A creedal statement, a creed, like the Apostles' Creed, is just that. It's not everything you can say about the faith, but it's enough that you can nurture faith. What that means is, when we say the Apostles' Creed, is you don't have to believe every word of it. Let me give you some examples. You can be going through the worst moment in your life. You are Job, and you are wondering about God and if God even exists. And the church says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. In that moment, you may not. You could be a woman who has found herself constantly living with this attack of shame on you and then the church says, I believe in the virgin birth. And you go, isn't this just another set of people who want to make women have to be good girls? And you question it. You can get to the idea of forgiveness of sins, and you can be that person that either kind of has like a never-been-in-the-church and just has this kind of general impression that when these people talk about sin, they're being oppressive and cruel, Or you can be somebody who's had way too much religion and think that when people talk about sin, they're being oppressive and cruel, right? You can have either person. But they hate saying that line about forgiveness of sins. On any given Sunday, when we say these words together, the task there is not that you have to agree with every single word. I don't agree on every single word. There's always this process of becoming where I question it again. But what does happen when we nurture that space, when it becomes that room, is that we, in that, together stand up and say it. The individual becomes the communal. We say it together, not because me and God have got it all figured out, but because in the community, this is how we nurture each other. In fact, it's about borrowing faith. Borrowing faith. The person walks into this room and here's the Apostles' Creed and they are the person that's going through the worst moment in their life and they really are not sure they can believe that God exists. But God gives them a community who says that to hold them up and will do the praying for them when they can't. To be the good kinds of friends around Job that helps him get through that time. When the young woman shows up and she is mired in shame, and she hears the line about a virgin birth, and yet the church still says it, the church is actually capable of explaining that, of making it logical in a sense, and helping her become, here's an important phrase, shame resilient. Because in that confession, when you understand it, you realize you're not just talking about a virgin birth, you're talking about Mary, and you're talking about Mary the other Mary, and Martha, and Ruth, and Esther. You, as a community, can hold that up for her. And like a tuning fork on all kinds of other voices, you can cut through it to what God wants her to hear about herself. You can do that as a community in this womb. When that person who shows up and feels like they are constantly judged, like the world is, people are always talking about how they're doing something wrong, and it's sin, and they're going to hell, and they're wondering about it. You can be the that and the tuning fork on those ideas and say, this is what it means. If you do more than just say it, but understand it. I mean this, you don't have to believe everywhere of the Apostles' Creed every day, all the time. John Calvin. You know John Calvin. I talk about him. He's the kind of the the theologian that kind of gave us reformed theology. Do you know that he himself criticized the Apostles' Creed? You want to know why? There's that line in there that says Jesus descended to hell. John Calvin, the guy who was the big reformer, right? He wanted wanted the church to reform. So anything it believed that wasn't from the Bible, he's like, it's got to go. Tell me in the Bible where it says that Jesus descended into hell. It ain't in there, guys. This got into the Apostles' Creed, and by the time we get to that line, I'll explain how it got into the Apostles' Creed. But John Calvin, as much as he pointed this out in his theology, Apostles' Creed is not justified by Scripture in that one line. He also didn't take it away. He said, stand and still say it. Even when you know that line's wrong. He had reasons for that too, and we'll get there one of these weeks. And by the way, uh, even though John Calvin didn't dismiss the Apostles' Creed, have you ever looked at a modern translation of the Apostles' Creed? We say the old traditional one, but the more modern ones, what it says, he descended to the dead, not that he descended to hell. It turns out John Calvin actually understood you could reform even a creed when it's wrong you don't have to believe it every time but you are asked by God to stand in community and create that space where the ideas that come from Christianity become the nurturing space for one's faith we borrow each other's faith in those moments, we give to each other a couple more ideas and these are just kind of the shorter ones, I want you to focus on the fact that you communally are sharing something with each other when you do this and understand why a couple more There's this old country song uh, that came to my mind that I have to share. It goes, you either stand for something or you fall for anything. Again, if you're there to help people become, I think that's true. There are a lot of false prophets out there. If you can't explain to somebody why chasing after that next sect or that next cult or what those words mean, and why we still hold to the Apostles' Creed. Again, if you don't, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And then the other one I would say is this: We do this because, like Paul, whose argument is is basically kind of like first, do no harm; don't become a stumbling block. You can also turn that around and say, "What are you for? What do you do? You don't eat to idle. You don't eat." Food, sacrifice to idols, Paul, fine. But what do you stand for? What do you want the Christian community to say and do and follow? What is it that you believe that brings forth behavior? The picture really of the stumbling block that Paul uses is one of pilgrimage. We're all on this journey together and you don't wanna get in somebody else's way and trip. But you can, instead of just choosing not to be a stumbling block, you can actually help people move forward more quickly their becoming their journey towards god you can actually help go better so not just don't be a stumbling block but actually help people move forward into their pilgrimage again just a reminder paul does not just tell us what to believe if we just come and say the Apostles' Creed, but we never talk again about why it is that that stuff is in there, we kind of miss it. People are going to misconstrue what it means. But we, in our becoming, in our kids' becoming, and the church's becoming, let will take our time. We'll go through it. And once again, we'll understand how these words became the womb in which the becoming of 2,000 years of Christians, in their becoming, these are the things that they stand for. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for all your saints, for your whole church, for all those of us who are nutty and sweet and those who are salty, the becoming that we are all part of, that diversity, that salvation, that sanctification. God, in the midst of all of that difference, help us to find a way to stand together and say things that create the space for all of us to become and all of your children to become. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's stand and sing our next hymn, Hosanna, loud Hosanna, number 248.